You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Harsha, and thank you again for tuning in for another episode of Changing Reality. We're super excited to have all of you, a lovely audience here once again on this uh, lovely th Thursday evening, if you guys are on um, the Penn campus or wherever that is um, in your part of the world. So today we've got a very, very special uh, interview in store for all of you with someone who's actually an alumni from the University of Pennsylvania. But before we get to that, for all of our new viewers here, I just want to say welcome to our Changing Reality family. And if you if you aren't already aware of it, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are changing the world uh, in their own ways. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, even artists, musicians, and top executives from all across the world, and especially here on Penn campus too. So stay tuned to the show to see the different, different amazing people that we'll be bringing on. And you're going to hear these inspiring stories on how they change not only the lives around them, but do it through things that they're passionate about, things that they're good at. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. But we also don't always hear their stories. So through this little platform, I hope that we can see the people who actually put in the work behind the scenes to keep many of the things that you and I enjoy alive and functional for many of us to use in our day-to-day -day lives. And I'm really passionate about hearing how these people are actually using their own capacities to affect the world around them. Personally, I founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with the Malaysian Ministry of Education to provide alternative education platforms for any student who wants to change their reality. We work with students from elementary all the way up to high school through various sessions, programs, and even experiential learning projects and activities to help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 10,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 20 years old. So we help everyday students change their reality. And hopefully this session or this uh, little interview that we have will inspire you to change yours too. So do drop it down in the show chat below. The show is brought to you by WQHS Radio, the student-run radio show at the University of Pennsylvania. So how many of us um, can't survive without social media? Personally, I don't think I can, full disclosure. But today we have someone who has done it all. From starting his career in Google to YouTube, he rose in the ranks of the world behind the scenes of our social media mania. And he has held some of the some really top positions from being the general manager of Vine to the ex-director of product management at Facebook and Twitter. So I'm super glad to welcome Jason Talk to our digital stage. Jason, are you here? Hi, everyone. Thank you, Harsha, for having me. Yep, we're super excited. How are you feeling? It's been a good day so far. <laughs> it's been a good day. I'm uh, I'm recovering from a cold, which is like weird because like probably many of you, I haven't been sick in like 18 months. But uh, so it's both like uh, it's uh, it's like a new and old experience. But um, but overall doing really well. Thank you. All right. Okay. Yes, I remember the days which I used to leave my house before the 18th month started, and used to get sick. But all right, I don't envy you. And um, to all of, yep, and to all of us watching, I hope that you guys are 
healthy. And if you are having a cold, that this at least makes you feel like, hmm, successful people get sick too. That's that's <laughs> what I'm about. For sure. So, <laughs> so to just start off and on the road to your success, I'd say you've been someone who has done so many phenomenal, so many entrepreneurial things in many stages of your life. And you were you even started um, an enterprise called Pen Drinks on the Penn campus when you were a student here. Was that the beginning of your entrepreneurship journey or did it start even before that in a sense? It's, it started even before that. Um, uh, it started before I knew what the word entrepreneurship meant. But ever since I was a little kid, I was always fascinated by businesses. Um, and uh, I recall like randomly asking my parents, like, how much does a car cost? Or like, how do we how do we get TV? Like, who do we pay? And it was just like the process was fascinating to me. And um, I think my earliest uh, uh, thing that resembled a, a venture was in elementary school. Um, my parents had like signed me up for tennis weekly tennis lessons, and I wasn't super fond of tennis, but they had a vending machine in the racket club, and I saved up the the few dollars I had and would buy stacks from the vending machine and then resell them for a profit to my classmates, um, which allowed me to, to get more money and more snacks for myself. Uh, so that, so that was my, my uh, earliest memory of that. And then had various little um, business type things, selling Lego on eBay and um, uh, selling my friends uh, jewelry in high school uh, th throughout, throughout my childhood. So, so a number of different experiences, none of them were like, um, uh, crazily successful, but they all um, taught me things and allowed me to like um, practice learning how to like write messages to customers and how to like come off as uh, a legitimate business when you're just like a 13 year old. Uh, so lots of lots of learning experiences there. But that's so cool. And I feel like everyone like like every kid would now be inspired. So like you've probably got like vending machines all around the country. Come tomorrow morning are gonna be like sold out because everyone's gonna be selling them with this as well. So oh no. But other than that, I feel like that's something that all of us would like want to do at the very least. As a kid, like did everyone around you like go like, oh good job, Jason, for like um, no or oh gosh. No, no. So I so at my um at my elementary school I I, I like I, I was having a good time and um, the other kids seemed to be happy getting their like lollipops and stuff. Um, but no, one day the principal of my elementary school called my mom and said, hey, your son's not allowed to sell stuff on the school bus. Um, I, I think maybe another parent had complained, like why is my kid asking for like dollars every, dollars every day? Um, oh my and um, and then yeah, I remember, I remember a uh, uh, talk with my mom where she said like, Jason, you you can't sell these things in the school bus. And I asked her like, why not? Like the kids want them. <laughs> and she didn't. She had like struggled to come up with an answer for me, which was which is funny in hindsight. So no, it wasn't wasn't always welcome. And it was it was um, it was um, a bit unusual. Um, I growing up, so I, so I was born in the eighties and 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 grew up in the nineties. Um, and when I was selling things on the internet. Um, that wasn't like a thing, like online payments were not standardized. So I was receiving checks and mon money orders usually, um, just like a verified check. Um, and uh, and I wouldn't tell people who I really was. I had a, a fake name. I changed my last name, uh, two characters in my last name, Jason Toss, which is 
just a different email address, jasontoss at hotmail.com. And I tried to give the illusion that I wasn't like a, a kid. <laughs> okay, very smart. I mean, your you need work on your alter ego naming because yeah, <laughs> not super abstract. Yeah, like I had my suspicions, but like despite all of that, I think that um you still went on and you persevered with that entrepreneurship spirit, with that spirit to do awesome things. And if I'm not mistaken, when you're I think 15, you actually co-founded and co-directed um uh, this organization called Pals, a nonprofit that actually runs summer camps for teens with Down syndrome. And it expanded from one camp in 2014 to, I think it's still like active today with your co-founder running it. So how did you actually start that off as, as a kid? Even? Yeah. So the story behind that was my, uh, my aunt has Down syndrome, my dad's sister. And when I was, um, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15, uh, I went to her um, 40th birthday party. Uh, and so we drove an hour from where we lived to go to my aunt Karen's 40th birthday party. And it was like, they had rented a room and she had like six or seven friends and they had like pizza. And it was a, like a very standard, like basic party. But my aunt Karen was so happy. And I remember just like feeling changed, probably like the the hormones of like teenage youth, like and my and brain development combined. But I remember on the drive back from the, um, party, I was just like bawling. <laughs> and I wasn't like, I wasn't sad. I was like, I was just feeling a lot of emotions of like, wow, I'm this like ingrateful teenager who's like pissed that I can't get the new Game Boy game or whatever. And here is my aunt who is so thrilled to have her family and a handful of friends around her eating pizza. And uh, I felt, I felt inspired uh, so much that I was like, how I would like to like, befriend some people in my high school uh, from the special education classrooms. Uh, and so like the next day I was like, I'm gonna go do this. And I was like, how do you do this? Like there's there's all these social pressures and, and just like systemic weirdnesses of like, like I'm not just gonna go up to like any random kid, you know, with disability or not and be like, hey, let's be friends or whatever. And so I went, uh, what I ended up doing is like going to the special education classroom and talking to the teacher and saying like, it's kind of weird, but like, um, do we have anything where we could like, like a best buddies type thing where, and and she's like, no, we don't. And I was like, well, can I, you mind if I look into it? And she was like, okay. And so I contacted best buddies at the time they weren't doing high school chapters. Um, it was like a college focused thing. So I was like, maybe we'll just make our own high school thing. So sent around like a petition to see if there'd be enough students interested, um, asked like whatever powers that be at my high school. And we created this club pals. And it turned out that there was actually like a lot of interest in this. Uh, at our first uh, event, we had something like 120 students, went to a pretty big high school, uh, but still didn't expect that much turnout and had so much interest um, from the student body that we ended up having like two to three buddies or pals, we call them for every person with a disability. And then as you mentioned that, that um, um, uh, developed into uh, what became a summer camp. I, I, I pitched this idea to a summer camp owner in Julian Krinsky, he runs a bunch of bunch of summer camps in the in the Philly area. He used to, including some with Penn, and said like, "Hey, you have business camps, you have tennis camps, you have all these different camps, but like none that really cater to people with um, with developmental disabilities. What do you think about starting one?" And he's like, "Great, let's do it. I'll fund it. Go nuts!" And so um, 
together with a, a friend from high school, a guy named Josh Stein, and then um, a, a younger woman we met, or a girl at the time, she was, I think, 15, Jenny Newberry. We started this summer camp in 2004 and had 16 campers and 16 counselors paired one-on-one. -on -one, um, and it was a blast. And as a teenager, it was like so much fun to like design a summer camp. And it was awesome for the counselors. It was awesome for the campers. It was awesome for the campers' parents, some of whom had told us that they had not had like more than um, one night away from from like their their teenage children since they were born. And so it was like, you know, they were able to take vacations. And anyways, it was just an awesome experience. And from there, we just grew little by little every year until we were, I think, at peak uh, for one location, like 130 campers and then like 150 staff. And at that point, it was like, unwieldy to like all be in one location because we had like six buses and it was just like a and so at that point <clears throat> we expanded to another location and then luckily jenny um one of the co-founders um who went on to princeton and, and is this brilliant mind decided to like devote her career to this so she's been running the organization full-time for the last like decade or so and, and as you said we're now in like a dozen locations um running summer camps and programs throughout the year that, that's amazing and it's like you built something that even like carried on until today and creates so much meaningful impact and i i can definitely see that that whole entrepreneurship vibe coming back like in this story and like what made you kind of like take that next step and apply to uh wharton or penn in a sense was it just like hmm did you just google like business colleges and be like oh that's the first thing that popped up like yeah it makes sense or how did you figure that out yeah so um uh, as the as the uh, son of two Jewish parents and one immigrant parent, they were like very um, focused on where are you going to go to school ever since I was young. And so I was familiar with like a lot of universities early on, like I'm sure many uh, Penn students and alumni were too. Um, and um, and I, I guess I thought I'm, I'm, I seem to enjoy this business thing and I'm not terrible at it. So like where are good business schools and um, naturally, Penn had um, one of the best, and um, and so I applied early, and um, and my parents were very supportive because it was an hour from where I grew up, so it wasn't too far from them uh, to visit. All right, win-win situation. And when you were in Penn, I know that um, many people in Penn come in either very lost or very focused. You seem the very focused type. And you, if I'm not mistaken, you actually did a Bachelor of Science in Management Operations and Information Management. I think, and with the right. minor music, right? That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. How did I, you come up with this combination in the first place? Like, <laughs> I get everything, and then there was music, and like, how did you pick, in a sense, what was best for you? Yeah. So I, I, I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. Actually, the the, the other school that I was most interested in high school was Babson, which had like the best entrepreneurship program at the time, um, and it was kind of um, uh, I I didn't fully get that um, Wharton was so focused on finance. Like I didn't, I'd heard of investment banking. I'm not sure I'd heard of consulting, but I like, I didn't, I didn't know what these things were. And so it was a bit of like a, like, whoa, like there's a lot of people here who, um, who are studying to work in like large banks and uh, like, that's not something I'm interested in. So I was focused, but also felt a little bit like um, strange or something. Um, and uh, in my freshman year, there was a required course, uh, we called it OPA, it was, the acronym was OPIM, O-P-I-M, Operations and Information Management. 
And this was a class that uh, was dreaded by most uh, of my peers, but I loved it. And it was basically like, how can we use spreadsheets to, um, to answer complex problems and, uh, and figure out like supply chain problems. And, and the par part of it that I really, really loved was that we would write these, um, these scripts, basically like it was like super simple programming um, in VBA. Uh, Visual Basic A. I don't know what the A stands for. And again, I loved it so much that I would like tutor my peers and like, and I was like, I'm, I'm enjoying this. And they, and they, and, and then so that's how I, I was like, I need to major in OPM. And then I was a Management 100 TA. I think they since renamed the class, but um, but was always fascinated uh, in 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 the intersection of like business and people and and. Uh, which is, I think, you know, one way to summarize management. And then um, in terms of music, I figured I'm at Penn, I should explore what other classes they have. And so when I was looking through like the different class options, I found this amazing music and technology class where you basically could like create electronic music as a class, which seemed like so much fun. And then I found this like intro to sitar class, which I hope still exists, um, taught by a professor named Alan Miner. They only had like a certain number of, of slots because people were, we had to fit in a room and share sitars. But so I, I started learning um, the basics of, of, of uh, sitar. Um, and and was like, I love this. I want to take more of these classes. And so once I did that, I was like, all right, I have enough that I should probably just get a, a minor in this. Okay, very cool. And everything seems to be coming together in some way. So you, I would like to say that you had like a really cool pen experience. You did music, you did, you found your passion, which is something that I feel like a lot of people don't find like a class, especially those hard classes that resonate with them. So congrats, great job. You seem very smart. And like, what what happened? Like, what were you like expecting coming out of Penn, like having graduated? Um, I know you started Google there, but like, was that always the plan? Did you always know like, this is what I'm going to go into? Or were you like the rest of us and lost and... No, I was I was very confused. I think in hindsight, it's easy to be like, oh, this guy had shit together. He knew what he was doing, but I, I, I did not. And you know, I went into Penn knowing I want to start a business, and then, um, and then I was surrounded by hundreds of smart people who um, appeared convinced that the right, as I mentioned, the right thing to do was like to go into investment banking or consulting, and I knew that I didn't want to do investment banking. It just didn't feel like right for me. But I was like, this consulting thing seems pretty cool. You work with other smart people and you consult in companies and whatever. Um, and so I, I started getting like sucked into the tide of that and, um, and came extremely close to, to working at, um, at uh, a consulting company. Um, uh, but um, I, I still had that like entrepreneurial tug. I also fell in love with Apple, like millions of others uh, at the time. They had released the iPhone my sophomore year and I was just like completely enamored. I was one of the guys, one of the many that were like waiting in line and um, and buying, you know, the, the first iPhone. And it just it just seemed so clear that this was going to like change how the world worked. And so, um, as I approached my senior year and decided, like, you know, I'm interviewing consulting companies. I should explore other companies. I, I tried to apply, try to work at Apple, and I basically like emailed everyone, every alumni at Penn that I could find via some like internal database and said. Hey, will you hire me? And heard a lot of friendly replies, but they were like, "No, sorry, we don't hire people fresh out of college unless they have computer science degrees." I suspect that's probably changed because Apple's grown a lot since 2007. I hope that's changed. Um, but then in that process, I kind of opened my mind to like tech companies as a concept, which wasn't like 
wasn't a people weren't um, Penn graduates weren't like regularly entertaining tech company offers outside of engineering in 2007 when I was recruiting. Um, but that was also the year when Google decided to do on-campus recruiting at Penn for the first time. And so um, they came to campus and I went to, you know, the sessions and, and I was like, this company is actually pretty cool too. It's not, it's not the Apple I fell in love with, but I, but it's kind of interesting. And so I interviewed there and, um, and, you know, did the, like the whole sell weekend dance um, thing with them. And, and I just kind of, I, I, I fell in love in a way that I didn't expect, but, um, but I, I guess I would say like, I had a realization that like what was important to me was not necessarily, was important to me was working with like really smart, creative, quirky people, um, even more so than like prestige and glamor and like whatever else comes with like, you know, working at a McKinsey or wherever. Um, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, it's more than just that to be sure. But um, I just really, I, something like resonated when I visited the Google campus and, um, and, and so I ended up uh, deciding to join Google, uh, uh, moved out to California, which I visited once for like a day. So it was, it was a, a big change for me, but um, felt like a good, um, a good leap to, to try. Very cool. And you started as a product marketing manager, right? So being new to Google, like are the magical stories that we hear true? Like is everyone like super smart and kind and selfless in Google or like, or should we get a reality check? Like, <laughs> like, like I just imagine you go there and then the golden gates open and then rainbows rain down the sky. <laughs> How accurate is my point of view of this? Uh, honestly, like at the time, that's how it felt. And that's how I remember it. I'm sure it wasn't as glamorous and I'm sure like, you know, all companies evolve and it's, it's not exactly the same company as it was then, but no, it was, it was pretty um, special. There were, uh, so to paint the picture, I started at Google in 2008 in September. And uh, at the time Google was like renting out buses from like a local like limousine bus company. Uh, and so they, they pick you up in San Francisco, you sit on this like very nice bus that they've like customized so that you got a desk and internet. And, and it's not just like basic internet, like they put like some really smart engineers on figuring out how to like make bus internet really fast. Uh, and and you, you arrive and you get this like amazing breakfast at any number of restaurants. And it really felt like, um, utopia, um, so much so that my my mom, who immigrated from Russia and lived through um, the USSR, was always like very skeptical of this. She's like, this is too good to be true. Like, this is like, this is not gonna work. I've seen this tried before. And she, I remember she'd come visit me in California and I'd take her to the Googleplex, which is what we called the headquarters. And she'd be like, this isn't right. I'm actually, on one of her visits, um, Sergey Brin was like in line in the cafeteria that we were eating at. And she was like, her mind was like blown that here's this like billionaire CEO and he's just waiting in line behind everyone else. I think he was wearing Crocs or some like weird shoes, like just like a normal dude. Um, no, and it was really special and, and people were really, um, you know, there's, 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 I'm sure there's bad apples at any company, but Google just had, um, at least in my orbit, like just really special people who, yes, they were brilliant, a ton of Stanford alumni, um, which had a totally different vibe than like my like uh, Wharton peers um, and a ton of people who just wanted to like, um, even though it sounds cliche, they just wanted to like make the world better in some way. And so there were, 
Um, there were projects in flight early on as I joined that I learned about that just seemed like crazy. Like I remember hearing about self-driving cars and that like Google's working on that. And I was like, what? Like this is this bat shit. Like that doesn't make and and now like you know a decade later like you know it's still not widespread, but um, many people have have now driven in these things and they they seem to work anyway. So it was just, it was, just, it was really magical. And it was a time when like, fortunately the internet was growing a ton and Google was growing. And so they were, and, and, and Google's run by Sergey and Larry who were very, were not businessmen. They were very much like, let's invest and try new things. And so basically if you had um, uh, an idea you're really passionate about and like some minimal level of clout, you could like start a team and go work on it. And so there were a lot of these like offspring new, um, new ideas being born. And it was just, it was really an awesome time. Cool. And did you fit into your role? Did you like immediately see like oh, this is what I know? Okay. No. <laughs> we're yeah, now I'm picking such a rosy picture. Like we're all gonna be fine. But like what happened? <laughs> no, I'm glad you asked that because um, and it's it's funny how you know uh, sometimes memory paints like a rosier picture. But no. Um, so I joined as an associate product marketing manager. I didn't know what that meant. I had only taken like one or two marketing classes in college. I didn't really love the marketing classes. Um, and, but it turned out that like the things I was learning in college were were not the things that I did as an associate product marketing manager. And um, I had my manager when I joined was this amazing, brilliant guy, uh, but he was he was too busy for me. He had a lot of responsibilities. He was like on the in the process of getting promoted. And so I was his most junior hire. He didn't have time to like meet with me very often. And I was a needy, you know, college grad that like needed to be told like, you know, you're doing a good job or whatever. And so I, I felt like, what am I doing here? I don't know how to contribute. I don't know what they want. And I, and I remembered like doing short days at work and wondering like, is this for me? And it really took like, I'd say it took like three or four months before I finally felt like, oh, I'm actually adding some value somewhere. And then I started to like get my groove, but, but no, initially it was like, I'm lost. There's no manual. I didn't have like, um, initially like a close mentor to walk me through things. And so it, yeah, it took, it took a, a minute. So I'm sure this is something that a lot of us feel when we first start working on something. And personally, I've worked with a lot of youngsters and this is how like the initial process is. Is there like a switch that flips one day or do you just get into the group and you learn the ropes in a way? For me, I think it was just like time. I remember actually, this is like jogging back memories. I remember like freshman year at Penn, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, and I think it's just like, for me, at least it just took a period, it takes a period of time, which like is, has never been like less than three months and probably has like gone up to like a year before I felt, I felt comfortable in any new situation. And yet it's important to like try new situations. Otherwise you just do the same thing forever. Um, since this is a pen interview, this is reminding me that um, my first calculus exam in college, I got like a D or something. I got like, I got a very bad grade. Um, and I'd always been awesome at math or so I thought. And I just like what like I, I it wasn't I didn't make it didn't make sense to me and I wasn't it wasn't clicking and I was going to the lectures, um, and uh, and and you know fortunately I was able to figure out like oh going to lectures is not actually the way I'm learning so I just stopped going to lectures and just like did all the practice exams and then like was able to you know improve my grades, um, but um, but all that to say it, it just no it, it I don't have any secret other than like it takes time it's uncomfortable, um, but. 
it's kind of necessary in order for you to grow and in order for you to try new things to put yourself in those like slightly uncomfortable situations. And now, you know, 15, 14 years out of college, I'm, I, I've now like done enough reps of that, like jumping into something new that like, it's just a little bit more comfortable, which is, which is true of anything. It's, it's how like public's like, I, I, I completely, um, despised public speaking in any form for years. And then just after just forcing myself to do it again and again and again and again, it just became slightly less uncomfortable each time. And that's how you, that's how you learn to do anything. Um, that's not, that's not natural. Well, sorry for forcing you to do this interview then, but thank you. I feel like I'm learning a lot and I'm sure our audience is too. So I will just continue your discomfort for the rest of the interview. Apologies. No, it's, it's good. That one, one plus side of this sort of thing is I don't see like a, a horde of people watching and that, that just makes it a lot easier. I don't know if anyone can relate watching this, but it's sometimes it's a little easier just to talk it, you know, to one person or to a screen. Yeah, yeah the rest of you just close your eyes so that we just can't see. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like that is that is I think very true. I feel we all have like a, like a period of like adjustment of like those growing pains whenever we're starting something new. But you eventually I think did really well. I mean like product marketing manager at Google. The fact that we know like that almost everything we use nowadays is by Google. I think you did a pretty good job. Like thanks. And like um, going through that process of like like getting adjusted and then working and excelling in your job and then deciding to hey you know what maybe i'll take another job at youtube doing being a product manager there and then knowing that you have to kind of like restart that whole process why did you then decide to move to another company in this yeah um well first of all i need to i need to acknowledge that there were many 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 more people who had much more to do with Google success than me and i mostly just got to like brag about stuff that engineers were doing to like the world as a, as a product marketing manager, which is like a very easy job um, uh, compared to like actually coming up with like the, the, the brilliant um, tech that powered things like, like Gmail and, and um, Google voice and whatnot. But, but in terms of YouTube, so I, I was in a rotational program, which was like, seemed cool, but in hindsight it was like awesome. So any of you considering those sort of rotational programs, I would encourage it because it, it was that I was I was forced to switch teams after my first year. So I worked on Chrome for a year, and then I was forced to work on a new team. And then I worked on Gmail. And then at the end of that year, it's customary you move on to another team. But I ended up actually ended up staying at Gmail until um, one day I got an email from a guy who was working at YouTube, a guy named Hunter Walk, who I had didn't know, um, but he just said like, Hey, do you want to interview at YouTube for a product manager job? And I had always been like jealous of the product managers I worked with because they they appeared at least to have like the ultimate keys uh, in terms of like deciding what features to prioritize. And while I loved my job and like I said, I felt like it was like easy to be a PMM on like Gmail where the product itself is awesome and I just need to like tell people about it. It always seemed even cooler to be like the person who decided like I'm going to prioritize um, I don't know, uh, priority inbox or, or undo send or a totally new email thing called um, uh, inbox or whatever it was. Um, and, but I'd always thought like, I can't do that. I don't have a computer science degree. I like engineers won't listen to me. Um, so, so when Hunter reached out and he was like, hey, do you wanna consider this? I was like, yeah, if you'll consider me, I'll, I'd love to consider it. And I'd, I'd made a lot of videos in college um, and, and before that, and, and was pretty familiar with the YouTube interface as like a user. And so I had a lot of opinions about how it should work. It's always easier 
if you're working on a product that you have like that you're a target user of because I could just I didn't have to like analyze it and talk to customers like certainly I, I did do that once I, be, I went in the role but when I was interviewing I could just right off the bat say man I wish you did blah 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 and they were like oh these are actually reasonable <laughs> suggestions like um, and so yeah so I interviewed for that and and got the role unexpectedly and and as much as I was loving my time at Gmail I had an amazing supportive manager named um, Ariel. Uh, Jackson at the time, Errol Reinstein, it seemed like too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so I moved over to YouTube as a product manager. Um, again, like didn't know what I was doing initially. I, luckily for me, I had like um, a couple of Eng counterparts who were very sympathetic to me and like answered all my dumb questions and helped me, um, helped me uh, get over that hump again. And, and it turned out to be an awesome move both for my career, but also personally. Uh, and although it turns out product managers don't have like the full magic wand powers I thought they had, <laughs> turns out like engineers own a lot of that. Um, it was still like a really fulfilling um, switch to become a product manager. Okay, very cool. Goal achieved, I see. Good job. And like in that role, you mentioned that before that you thought, hmm, maybe I can't do that if I don't have a computer science degree. But then you got this role and then now I assume you have this team, you've got engineers who report to you, you've got marketing people who report to you. How was it like taking kind of like charge of the whole product and growing it in a way and as you were new to the role at the same time? How was that for you? So um, I was very lucky in many ways. Uh, uh, one of which was I had a really great wise manager, a guy named Noam Levinsky. He had a really great wise manager initially, Hunter Walk, and then later a guy named uh, Shashir Mavrotra. And um, and I could kind of like follow what they did. And one of the things that Shashir um, taught to his like PM team was that the role of any PM when they join a team is to is as note taker is like your job is not to come in and be like, all right, step aside, this is what we're gonna do. Your job is to like add value in some way. Nobody wants to take notes, fine, the PM will do it. You take notes and and you basically, uh, the, like the, the meta point there from Shashir was like, you have to like earn people's trust and you have to like show them that you can be valid, you can bring value and, and then they will eventually want like come turn to you. And so that's that's kind of what I did. And it was easier because I, I really didn't know like what I was talking about in many ways. So I just asked questions, tried to be valuable, take notes, tried to make my team look good. Um, I was also really lucky that the team I joined did not have a product manager. So a lot of people will be stepping into roles where um, they have you know shoes to fill. And in my case, um, I was like icing because they, they were doing stuff on their own and they were like, actually, we could use somebody to go like, you know, prioritize this stuff or talk to this other team or whatever else. Um, so it wasn't easy, um, but I, 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 I think that, I guess the one piece of advice I'd, I'd bring forward beyond Shashir's advice from that um, is to just be really honest with yourself and others about your strengths and weaknesses. I think there's like um, a temptation when you're young to like pretend like you know everything uh, but people see through that. And so I rather than do that, I'd encourage others to just like, like say, look, this is what I'm good at. This is what I don't know. And people, I think more often than not, don't view that as like, oh, he, he or she doesn't know that. It's more like, oh, I'm glad that they acknowledge that they don't know that because I already knew it anyways. Uh, and so I kind of just took that attitude um, uh, in, in as I learned to be a PM. And, um, and I think that that earned me the trust of the engineers um, and cross-functional folks that I worked with. All right, 
very very good leadership advice i'd say and i think that um that it's a different way of looking at leadership like we we i think we all have this like view of a leader who sits at the front of the room and says okay guys cancel your schedules we're doing abc but i think yours is much more of an effective way and on that topic of leadership like you mentioned earlier that you were an end user you have all of these kind of like um ideas of like how it can be improved and like as someone who has like who who does like another startup other than this and works on websites and programs i know sometimes like from the technical person's point of view it's kind of like their baby whenever they build something so it's kind of always hard to take feedback in and you is just kind of like the person who has to like it's your job to kind of like get them to adjust things certain ways and things like that how do you communicate with these people who are building um uh, we're building the actual products we're building the very technical side of um the youtube infrastructure and how is it learning to kind of like communicate and give them to take their suggestions yeah it's a great question and um it's not easy and i think i think the more like probably the more talented the engineers you're working with the harder it is because like they are they are smart and they they might know they're smart and and why should they listen to you when you like don't under, literally don't understand the language that they're writing like the code in. Um, a few things come to mind. Um, one, I think, is just like making it like making it clear that you respect the value that they bring, and so that they feel like they they understand that like like you don't you don't think that you know you know everything. And but and, and and on that note, I I think one of the one of the um, arguably the flaws of of Google's and I don't think they do this anymore, but requirement of a CS degree is you might end up with more people who like think they know what they're doing who like but are not op the best people at the job even though they do have a cs degree from the top university it's not universally true um um what else the other thing like something that i've had to pull a couple times in my career earlier on which like i didn't want to pull but i but i had to um was uh was to say something like uh look engineers <laughs> i wouldn't call them that but <laughs> look so and so and so and so um I, we disagree on this. My job is the product manager. My job is to look after like the product experience. Like just the same as I wouldn't ever like go into like a code review of yours and be like, you should do something differently. I'm asking for you to like, trust me on this one. And the, part of the reason that's challenging is um, just like, a, like a, a law of numbers, like on a typical tech team, you might have like eight engineers, one designer and one PM. And so maybe six out of the 10 or so people who are all engineers like think one thing and so it's like the majority thinks something and you may be in the minority but you shouldn't make decisions based on like majority vote in most cases um i i pulled a similar thing to that with oftentimes the designer and i would feel the same way and so it, it was easier and um uh, better in many ways for me to say hey everyone like i know you guys and it was often most it was often guys uh you guys disagree um we really should trust so and so the designer because he or she's a designer and like they know what they're talking about. And usually just like mentioning that, people will be like, oh, that's a fair point. <laughs> like, uh, and and also, another thing I'd find is like, they'd give you a shot or two and then sometimes you'd be wrong and sometimes you'd be right. And like, as, as a tactical example, I, when I joined YouTube, I was working on the video editor. Uh, they had this cloud-based video editor. It's basically like, how can we redo what, um, it's basically like what Docs did to Word. They wanted to do like you know the video editor to insert your desktop video editor, um, and I, I when I and they were kind of like um, building out the features you'd expect for an online like NLE video editor. And I uh, I said, hey, wh why don't we simplify this? 
like, like they were like, look, we have like exposure and brightness and five other things that all kind of mean the same thing to most users. Uh, and I was like, why don't we just choose the one we think users want, which is usually exposure, call it brightness, because that's actually what people referred to it at, at the time. And then I remember we, we, they were like, all right, we'll try this. We did some user tests, they came in and like person after person responded really positively to this. And they're like, oh, this guy, Jason's not like total idiot here, maybe we should listen to him. And then we launched a simpler version of the product and it had a lot more usage. And they're like, oh, actually this guy might be onto something. And so you, you just, I mean, it, this wasn't an overnight thing. You, you earn their trust, you, you know, you, you need people who are willing to, to go out on a limb uh, for you, but then over time, I think I was able to earn their trust and then or gain confidence in myself to like make those bolder and bolder decisions. Very cool. And um, I think that shows kind of like your experience of being the end user and also how you bring that by saying, oh, people aren't going to know it's called exposure. You're going to have to use the word brightness and kind of like make it like something that someone who is the user would kind of like want to use and actually know how to use. So, okay, right person for the job. And you would have obviously been really, really successful at it because your next, because you eventually went on to become, I think, head of product at Vine and eventually general manager at Vine. And I'm going to, and like off topic, how do they even hire for Vine? Do they, do you have to have like a certain amount of like pop culture knowledge of like the memes that are circulating and they're like, yes, that's our guy. Or like, how do you even get to Vine in a sense? So um, like, like many things, it was a weird twist of events. I had, um, at the time I had moved, I was living in, in California, working in San Bruno at YouTube headquarters. And there was, um, in the course of a week, my then girlfriend, now wife's dad was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And my mom had like uh, a freak accident. And we, we were like, wait a second, we have to be closer to family. They were both in Pennsylvania and we were like, I, you know, career is important, but family is even more important and, you know, we need to move. And so luckily supportive managers at YouTube were like, cool, you can move, you can work remotely. And so I did that for a while. And then turns out working remotely sucks, <laughs> as a lot of you know, or at least it sucked for me. Um, it's like, it sucks even more when like the rest of the team is in person. And so you're just like the one person not in, in, in real life. Um, and so I started to think about like what's next and was, um, connected through some coworkers to um, some leadership at Twitter. They had purchased uh, this company, Vine. One of the co-founders um, had to take a leave of absence for um, for like health or personal reasons. And so they were looking for a head of product. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I mean, there was some amount of like, is this, an, is this a, uh, uh, does this person have like some semblance of taste and understand like the mobile video landscape? I mean, at the time memes weren't, uh, I mean, memes existed certainly, but they weren't in the form that they are today. Um, but uh, did my interviews? A lot of it was like um, cultural, like do like do do they do these people want me around? I guess I think. And then uh, they did, or they decided they thought they did, and then ended up at buying as head of product, which was which was a a, a fancier way of just saying product manager, because at the time the team was like fifteen people, and so there was. Um, I, I was the head of product, but the product team was just me. <laughs> uh, there, were, there were no other product managers when I joined. Okay, very cool. And again, Vine has been so revolutionary. I think like I can't walk down the street without quoting three Vine references. And um, you move from head of product, product manager, however little credit you want to give yourself, to general manager, which is huge. You ran, I would say, one of the most influential social media platforms there is. It was the TikTok before TikTok, in a way. So, like, and, and hopefully nobody watches this video, like, years later when TikTok's not relevant, so they 
But anyway, so like, yeah. did you know that this was going to be such a wide hit? And what was kind of like the thoughts of you guys behind the scenes? Because we were all having a blast on like this side of the infrastructure and like on the users end. Were you guys like confused or like what's going on <laughs> or like what was happening? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I could answer that both. Like on the one hand, it was so clear at the time to me and I think to like the Vine team that like mobile video was gonna be a thing. Like at the time, Instagram was already a thing, uh, but it was only photos, right? And uh, and phones weren't super fast and they were smaller. And so like video didn't always work that great. Um, um, but it seemed just like obvious. And at the time Vine had like went straight to the top of the app store chart. So like on the one hand I could say, yes, it was clear that this was happening. There was no question. On the other hand, I could say uh, it was it was not clear to me. And I think to most of us that like this trend would continue like at the pace it's continued, you know, and that years later there'd be a different app, TikTok that was like the most downloaded app every month for like, you know, 18 months in a row or whatever. Like, I think we we knew it was going to be, um, we knew it was going to be, we knew it was big and we knew it was going to be big, but I don't think we realized like quite the magnitude of it. Um, and I think you can, I think you can see that in like, in, in terms of like the size of the team and the investment that we proposed and that Twitter made. Like we were, when I joined, we were like 18 people. And I thought, I thought we grew really fast because we were up to like 50 people within two years. But you look at TikTok today, it's like thousands of people. Like, so like there's, um, there's that, but no, I mean, I, I think, I think we all knew that there was like some special stuff going on in the community, um, uh, user, user driven. Uh, honestly, most of it was outside of our control, uh, for good or bad, uh, for good, because there was this like vibrant excitement from people. Like, like we wouldn't decide that like memes are going to be a thing. Comedy was going to be big and buying. Like people decided that, um, uh, the bad is that like, you know, sometimes things would become popular that we didn't want to become popular. Uh, or that, like, for, like as an example, like there was a period of time when like adult content became very popular in Vine and we were like, well, this, that's not a, that's not good because there's a lot of people using Vine are very young and that, that might not be the best thing for them to see. There was, there was a time when like, um, uh, I remember one trend, this is like a weird one, but like there was a trend on Vine where people were like, um, using magnifying glass to like burn like insects and ants which was just felt like a, like a messed up thing to like become popular but like we there was a balance of like how much do you do you curb this like but you also want to let people like do their thing and so so we we tried our best to like understand what was happening um i i i hired people who understood it better than me who were like deeply ingrained in vine culture uh and we, we would ask them to like help teach the rest of us on the team we'd watch like a weekly playlist of vines um, to better understand like what was trending, why it was trending, what the origin of those vines were, um, just to get a better understanding of like what was happening. Because it, it, it even though it was, um, even though these were just you know six second, just six second videos, there was a lot of complexity behind um, and history behind each one of these these uh, the memes that emerged. Okay, so it's nice to know in a sense that if you trended enough on a social media platform, you'd catch the attention of the people working there. So that's a nice thought. Everyone oh, yeah. who's creating content is now having going to set a new goal that their videos get played like in a board meeting. So thanks. <laughs> yes, but like there was, there was, on, not, sorry, on, on that note, at YouTube, when I worked at YouTube, one of the most delightful things was all the rooms were named after like viral YouTube videos. And so you'd go to a room and be like, 
what's this? And you'd like, and you'd find this whole like treasure. Cause it was anyways, just to say, yes, like you absolutely will get the attention of like the teams behind them. Okay. So new goal, make a YouTube video so popular to name a room after you. Okay. Th this yes. video that will be up. Okay, guys, we've got to keep watching, you know, but, uh, <laughs> Okay, very cool. And like, again, it's also nice to see that you guys are actually monitoring the things that are going on. You guys actually like, putting in that element of like keeping in touch with your users, because that is kind of like, I would say the thing that people love about social media, it's fast, it's um, you get connect with people, you know, and you don't know, and you get to kind of like keep that interaction going in a sense. And you obviously know a lot about social media and how social media works. You saw the rise and fall of um, Vine in a sense. But um, after that, I think you moved on to Twitter from like the larger Twitter organization from Vine. And was that a leap in any sense? Like Vine is very much youth centric. Twitter, you've got everyone and everything, um, all like from politics to jokes to um, saving shows every other month. So like, how did was that transition for you to like broaden up the whole scope? And what did you learn from your time in Twitter in comparison to your time at, at Vine that you didn't see at all? So, um so Twitter owned Vine. So it was, it was kind of an interesting relationship. And to be sure, I was always working at Vine while I was part of Twitter. I just became a, a director at Twitter in addition or like whatever at the same time as being a GM at Vine. But I was able to see a lot of what was happening at Twitter um, and and got a preview in many senses of like where Vine <laughs> might be headed, like um, uh, both in terms of like content policies. So like Twitter initially had a very lax content policy of like anything goes and then they realized like maybe they need to be a little bit stricter and and in fact when it comes to like video you have to be even stricter um at the at the time uh, that i was there the twitter was just launching its own video product um and uh and so they were they were realizing oh you know we they're the, where we draw the line for like a bit of text may need to be a little bit different for a slice, um, a video. Um, and, and the other big lesson that I observed at Twitter was like the effects of becoming a public, what the effects of becoming a public company are, especially like if your product is depending on, especially if, if your product's not like um, growing at the rate it once was. So Twitter had, had gone public shortly before I joined. And when you become a public company, you have to disclose certain public metrics like how many users are using your product. And that creates an additional level of like pressure to keep growing that number. Um, and uh, un unfortunately for companies, you don't have like a direct, it's not like you can just say, okay, let's increase this 10% every month. Like you're at the will of the people. Just, like, get more people. I don't know, just like plant more people, I guess. Well, we, I mean, like I, I, I like it, that sounds like absurd. And yet I had conversations with like uh, executives at Twitter who were like, okay, what can we do to just like make this like an, e like an equal, you can even grow so that every, every quarter will grow by X million. And I'm like, you, you, I wish we could do like, and if we could do that, why wouldn't we just bring them all in immediately? Like, it's, <laughs> this isn't this isn't like selling cans of Pepsi or something like where you could make distribution deals and rely on people buying them. Um, so, but but anyway, but, but so so that that created a lot of of, of strange incentives, I'd say, where um, Twitter started expanding this growth team, a team focused exclusively on growth. And while there were really smart people running it and working on it. 
it was bizarre that there was like a team working on the product and a team working on like the like growth levers, which which evolved into like email reminders and things that like maybe increase the number of monthly active users in a quarter, but like no person, no like Twitter user out there is like, thank God for that email reminder on the 30th of the month. Like like things that aren't really driving like direct value to the user. So um, so anyways, I, I, I learned mostly from observation, um, a lot of the, of the strange things that happen when you become a, a public company. Yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Okay, very interesting. I, I didn't think of it that way. And I didn't think of the struggles that social, like, as you said, it's not like a can of Pepsi. If like someone has an account, you can't be like, get another one. Like, I guess you could, but like, I mean, you, you can, you can, and companies do that. They're like, oh, we should use multiple. And it's like, this is bizarre. Like, this is, what, what, are, what are you offering? Yeah, <laughs> but okay. And I will definitely think about that the next time I try to access anything on Facebook and I should think that I should get another one just in case, you know, like help them out a bit. I can do that. I've got a couple of emails, so you're welcome, Google. But anyway, uh, <laughs> moving on again from Twitter, you then went to Google again. Um, you worked on their AR and VR department or their division in AR and VR. That is extremely cool. And, I, and everyone now is looking at AR and VR as the future. I mean, it's kind of your past since you were there. So like, how did you kind of like come into this new role again? And um, what, is it as cool as it sounds, number one? And number two, like, <laughs> okay. And number two, it's like, how like your job is kind of like coming up with these new products and things like that. So in a field where everything is new, how do you get that inspiration of what you can actually start working on? Hmm. Um, I'd say like, if, if anyone watching or listening has not tried, um, uh, a six DOF, six degrees of freedom VR experience, you should. That's so like the Oculus Rift or the Vive, those are six degrees of freedom, meaning you can like, like a, a Google Cardboard, you just can move around like this, that's three degrees of freedom. And and then with like a, with like one of like these, you could actually move around the room and it's it's a totally different ball game. And yes, it's awesome and it's mind blowing. And for a while, at, like after I joined Google, I was just giving people demos and it was like delightful for me because I could see people just like minds get blown and then it's delightful for them. So um, on the one hand, yes, it's as cool as it seems, I guess. On the other hand, like totally no, it's not as cool as it seems because like as neat as this device looks and as magical as it is, 99% of the time it sits on the calendar because like uh, a lot of practical reasons. Like I put this thing on my head I don't need to. I probably don't need to tell you. Like I'm, I'm ignoring my wife and children. <laughs> I have things I might step on. I say I'm thirsty. I can't find where you know to move the mask up. So there's a lot of there's a lot of practical drawbacks. Uh, there's also just some like technological uh, constraints that have not yet fully been solved. Although I, I think what attracted me to VR um, and to go work in this new role was that we were at this interesting time, and I think we're still in this interesting time where like. You, it's not hard to imagine a world where like you have awesome path through video and you have like super high resolution displays, and whatever else, um, but we're not quite there yet. It felt like we were looking at like the first giant cell phone, but we knew that it was going to become the iPhone eventually. And so like, of course, you'd want to work on that journey. Um, and then in terms of your question about like coming up with ideas, I mean, it, it was it was a joy to be able to go into this new area and um, and have so much freedom to explore new um, new ideas without like revealing too many details about the types of things that we did. We, we basically said, 
Um, let's come up with like a high level hypothesis and then let's try many different experiments. Let's constrain ourselves to like two weeks per experiment. And it turns out like most things in life, there's like diminishing marginal utility. And so like in, in a two weeks, uh, you can create a unity demo that's like, that demonstrates a concept. And then it might take like five months to like craft that down to something you could like ship to a larger audience. And so we basically tried to like embrace that instead of fight it and say, let's just get the 80% concept down and test lots of different things and get a feel for them. And then after we've done that, we can regroup and say, okay, which direction do we want to uh, explore? So that's, that's basically what we did. Okay, very cool. How did you build a team that was willing to try this out? I mean, like normally you go to work, you say like, huh, this is my job. This is the thing that I'm supposed to do. And then you come in and you're just like, you know what, for the next, what, three months, we're going to like do different things every two weeks. We've got to finish at least like, we've got to like get it to at least a stage where we can test it out and things like that. And only then we're going to decide what we're actually going to do. So like, yep. how do you like build and convince a team to do this in a sense? It's a great question. And I think I had like enormous, enormous luxury of being uh, doing this at Google. And it's part of the reason I wanted to do this at Google and doing it at Google New York. So Google New York is the second biggest engineering site for Google. It's quite large, thousands of engineers. Um, but it is the second biggest, right? There's like way more people in Mountain View. And so like uh, most, not all, but most like crazy new technology projects, self-driving cars, whatever, like will be born in, in Mountain View. Um, uh, again, not universally true, but, but, and so, but as a result, um, sorry, I'm just muting my father calling me. As a result, um, there were lots of engineers in New York office who were working on things that were mildly exciting, but maybe not like crazily exciting. Like there was a massive um, ads, presence in New York. And so, and so uh, I had the luxury of being able to through nanobots, no? What'd you say? Sorry, you cut out. They weren't exactly like making like revolutionary, no? Okay. They were like optimizing ad exchanges. Like that's oversimplifying. I'm sure they were doing a lot more interesting things, but there were enough people there that I could like, I just printed out signs. Like there's internal like job postings, but I just printed out signs. I uh, tried to make them eye catchy. So I like, I think I found like old, old pictures of like um, famous people and then put like new goggles on them. And it just kind of looks like a funny juxtaposition. And I put them around the office and said, do you want to work on VR? Come talk to me. And I'm sure a lot of people were like, what, are they, what is they going to, what are they going to work on? I have no interest. Um, but there were luckily enough people who were like, you know what? I would love to work on something new. There were some people who had like just been passionate about VR on their, um, as a hobby. And they were like, sign me up for this. And so there was kind of like some amount of self-selection but but in short, there was no shortage of interest, which was which was amazing. Um, and then uh, so much so that I gave them some homework to like really test their passion. I was like, I want you to make any app in VR and show me that. Uh, I think along some like high level thesis. And basically, it was like people who were like really stoked about this, but you know, would spend the next weekend or whatever like coming up with something. And then a lot of people were like, ah, I'm gonna just stick with my day job. And so, anyways, we were able to form a team of people that were like amazing, um, amazingly talented, willing to learn a new programming language. None except all but one were completely new to doing 3D development, but like Google has a mentality of like engineers as generalists and that they can learn anything. And so these people basically just like went through some tutorials and learned how to develop um, 3D apps. And luckily they were really smart and were able to pick this up pretty quickly. 
Okay, pretty smart and kind of like getting them to kind of like self-select also I think pretty much helped you out um, in like making sure that the people who actually came there were like, if they're crazy enough to look at a sign of like some old timey wearing VR goggles, I'm pretty sure they're like crazy enough to like build VR stuff. So yes. pretty smart yes. like getting them on board. And um, eventually you became director of product management at Facebook, which was uh, your recent role. Um, and tell me a little bit about this. You started this role, I think, just before the pandemic started and you've been in it. Yeah most of the pandemic. So how in a sense has all of these different experiences in leadership in um, like bringing your ideas to the table paid off now that you've got this high, that you had this high position role um, in one of the biggest social media, if not the biggest social media company right now during a pandemic, like being managing a whole team remotely, as you said, kind of sucks to work remotely. So like managing yes. this whole team um, isn't an easy feat. So what were the things that you learned that helped you do that uh, in the last year and a half? Yeah, so um, even though it's, I, I can imagine a picture being painted or like in someone's head of like, oh, this guy knew, knows what he's talking about and was so confident, blah, blah, blah. Facebook was like the first time that I went into a job and was like actually confident enough in myself to be like, I'm gonna go in this direction. I'm gonna hire a team. That's how I'm gonna like, and I'm just gonna do it how I wanna do it. If I'm, if we're gonna, if we're gonna like, we're gonna have meetings outside. Okay, worry. We're like, we're gonna do things my way, and like, I had the confidence, and I had the network to be able to say like, oh, this person I worked with back at Twitter was amazing. Like, you want to come work? And they were like, okay, and they didn't think I was just like a totally random. So they they were willing or somebody worked at Google, and so I was able to form this hybrid team of people I've worked with, people I hadn't worked with, and I was just like very clear about like what we were about, um, and. It was it was slightly harder to form the team than Google, I think. I think partly because of like the mindset of um, because, because of the culture of like Facebook and, and there was a little bit more emphasis for engineers on like um, metrics. And so I was like, I don't know what metric like not I don't know, but like we're not gonna have any like objective metrics. We're not gonna have millions of users. Like if you want that, if you're concerned about being promoted, this is probably not the team for you. And that a lot of people were like, okay, so like, have a good day. <laughs> um, but, 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 so, but, but we did form a team and then, um, and then as you said, the pandemic hit. And honestly, it's just, it was terrible. Like it's, it's not, it's not, um, uh, it's, I think some people are really, really enjoy it. And there are elements of it that of working remotely that are, that are, um, are good, but um, I didn't enjoy it. And I don't think my, my, most of the people I worked with enjoyed it. And, we just kind of hunkered down and I, and we try, I tried to like um, make sure people were like mentally in a good spot and, and able to prioritize what they needed. And that meant like, you know, a lot of like days off for me and for people on my team and, 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 and like, you know, I, I heard someone make the, the describe their job as they went from like a manager to like a therapist. And I feel like I did some amount of that. Um, and it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't great, but I just tried to remind, um, myself and my team like this is this is literally a once in a century thing and like if we're not our most productive right now that's okay and like we are very lucky that like we are able to work at a job where like we're not none of us are being laid off and we're you know they're, they're not lives at stake in our job and so it's okay if we slow down a little bit uh, and it turned out that some of the things we were building were actually like even more relevant uh, when people were remote. So one of the things we built was Collab, which is the collaborative music creation software, where a lot of musicians were stuck at home and 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 wanting to play with others. And so we kind of accelerated things that seem to be even more relevant today. Um, and so I think things worked out fine, but but no, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It's still not, it's still, I mean, it's, 
it's still not fun. I don't, I think for most people to work remotely. And I think we're going to see a lot of um, interesting, exciting times as people like return to the office and rethink like what um, working in an office could be like. Okay, and nice to know that you're in the same boat with I think eighty percent of the population, and are and going like, oh, when is this going to be over? In a sense, so final question that kind of like I think that all of us would want to ask in a sense: What is the one thing about being behind the scenes of this whole tech world that you see that we don't? Like, I'm sure there's a hundred things, but like, what's the one thing that would blow our minds? I love that. I don't know if this will blow your minds, but I, but I, I think. The biggest thing for me is that there there are just human beings behind everything that you experience, and I think it's like easy, it's it's easy to see a company and think, oh, Facebook, they're a bunch of scumbags, but like or whatever, just as hypothetical. And but then in reality, you start to meet people here, and you're like, oh, that's, a, that's a nice person. That's a nice person too. Oh, and I see how they made that mistake that was like very much not good. <laughs> but like by and large these are just like human beings trying their best and working in completely new territories like no nobody would have predicted what facebook was today when facebook started um uh the people behind these companies by and large are like nice people who want good things to happen in the world i, I think there's very very exceptionally few like just evil people right right it's so just there are people no like it's scooby-doo villains in the background of tech companies all right, there's I'll, not. I'll, I mean, like, all right. There are people who there were people who were naive because a lot of tech companies were started by people in their twenties who didn't like know what they were doing. There are people who made like mistakes, and not to diminish like the effects of those mistakes, but basically, like the short of it is, there's people behind it. Often, like fewer people than you think, um, and and they mean well, and they want to like create a good experience. Again, like oversimplifying and overgeneralizing, but. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just human beings, and also you know the other side of that is like there's there's nothing there's nothing about Google or Facebook that can't be recreated. Like they like you know Rome is not the biggest city in the world anymore, and Facebook and Google will not always be the biggest, and and they know this, and that's why they like need to acquire companies and keep evolving themselves. But just to say like um, once you, once you you meet these people behind them and you realize they're just human beings. It, it makes it a little easier to imagine like, hey, I, I can do this too. Like, why can't I, why can't you do this? And, and, and so that's the biggest thing I'd share. Okay, very, very insightful. And I think the next time anyone's gonna angry tweet at Twitter, they'll think twice after listening to you and not like <laughs> torture the poor Twitter admin anymore. So thank you once again. I think that this has been an amazing interview and I personally learned a lot and have a lot more respect for all of the people behind the screens, quite literally. So thank you and hope you enjoyed being on the show. I loved it. Thank you so much, Harsha. And thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Thank you. If you guys enjoy Changing Reality, we're on every Thursday evening um, on WQH Radio. Uh, WQHS radio um, here uh, in the US, but also available to any of you all around the world. So until then, see you next week. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS radio.